Hello and welcome to Keyframes in Betweens, a mini podcast about anime. I'm your host, Ben Halliburton, and with me today is Duncan. Hey. And Jeff. Yellow. So, as promised, we've gone from one artsy-fartsy anime to another. Possibly the er artsy-fartsy anime of anime. <laughs> Uh, this is, we're doing a tween on Revolutionary, Revolutionary Girl Utena. Uh, this is probably going to be a four-part tween where we cover the Student Council arc, the Black Rose arc, the Apocalypse arc, and then the different and divisive movie, The Adolescence of Utena. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I, by the time that the Monogatari tween had gone underway, I had already decided that this was something that I wanted to do, at least with Jeff, and I was happy for Duncan to come along because I know that he had also watched the show in the past and had a very different opinion of it from me. Mm. But uh, like the Monogatari series, Revolutionary Girl Utena, Kakame Shoujo Utena, uh, is a show that's predicated on exploring the power of stories to shape our reality. Uh, but Utena is interesting in contrast to Monogatari because I think it leans much more heavily into an examination of the fundamental toxicity of the stories that we tell ourselves. How the idea of hero, villain, damsel, magic sword, whatever, um, are corrosive and they warp people, uh, good people, fundamentally towards uh, stupid, selfish, and harmful things. While at the same time, those stories are often the elevating and transcendent uh, <laughs> transcendent uh force in our lives so it felt like something good for jeff to go crazy on uh and we will we'll see if i'm right i had watched the show way back uh when a good friend a very good friend recommended it um for our like informal anime club and it didn't make much of an impression on me but the fact that i've now watched parts of it up to four times has shown my initial initial uh reaction to be wrong so how how are y'all aware of Revolutionary Girl Utena before you'd watched it uh, in the you know past few weeks, Jeff? Um, I I mean I've always heard of it. It's always been on the to watch list. Um, this is the first time I've ever seen it. I've only seen what we're going to be talking about today, so expect me to be wildly wrong about things. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, other than just like general cultural osmosis, I don't really know anything about it. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I've, oftentimes you see it on like lists of like the best animes of the 90s alongside like Lane and yeah. Evangelion. Um, and it's funny that while at the same time it doesn't address, address the same technological apocalypse, it's po- apocalypses uh, are much more personal and interior and again to use the word from the movie's title adolescent um it does still the same have that same like cataclysmic millenarianism of like everything's going to shit and we live in the end times of something so uh it makes sense how about you duncan i know you'd watched it way back when how long ago do you think that was so yeah me and utina um (laughs) yeah that is not always the happiest of relationships like i have a tendency to pick anime occasionally which are from outside genres that i tend to watch but are well appreciated within the wider community and utina was probably the first shoujo slash magical girl thing i ever watched so from having a very sign in which is kind of action and science fiction aimed at 
young men was kind mm-hmm. of my main introduction to anime things like uh, Evangelion and uh, Lane and uh, uh, Perfect Blue and from all that it's okay what's this Utena thing which everyone seems to love which is rated really highly and oh, okay there's like a very stylized look to it yeah there's all these weird badly animated roses and silhouette at puppetry stuff going on and it's like how dare uh, you badly animated uh, oh you're, you're telling me like the, the 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 first time like one of the they superimpose like a, a swirling rose over the top of of a oh, i love sequence. that no it's great <laughs> it's cheap no, it's funny. It's 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 it's. Uh, we don't need to get we, in this we, yet, Duncan. We'll, we'll get to this. We'll it's, definitely get to this. It's make it's making a joke out of their production limitations and also doing joke censorship, which is something that for some reason always lands with me when they jokingly censor stuff. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> so yes, you you reacted poorly to some of the genius visual elements. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, I think the thing is like. I didn't know what to expect in terms of tropes. I didn't know what to expect in terms of what was going to be subverted and what was going to be played into. And so I just kind of got a bit lost in it. Like, we'll, we'll get to cats in a bit, but there's some mm-hmm. who have... who very much grow over the series who I... I, I really didn't like. And we'll, we'll get to, the, to them. And... Utena herself, although in- enjoyable, just seemed like so very contrived. And so many years later, oh, that's the point. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that, that's that's my start with it. And as I kind of just bounced off it a bit, I went, well, this seems okay, but I'm not sure why it's like up there in greatest of all time lists. I, I wonder how much of it is just the tendency for a lot of at least western anime fans where the things that happened in the 90s was all the anime and so all of it is the best of all time which i am guilty of we've i've made you guys watch some of the garbage that i loved back in the day um and but like this the show also I think requires you to have a very basic cultural literacy that a lot of people just aren't going to have the first time they watch it. Like, I think yeah. I've come into this like perfectly primed. Like I'm familiar with <laughs> Ikahara's sort of foibles and like seeing a lot of those sort of happening for the first time is interesting. Like I've seen like a lot of discourse. I've, I know a lot of people who I respect who really like the show. So like I'm, I'm really willing and ready to give this show a good, like the benefit of the doubt so like if something seems off i'm i'm willing to like wait and see what's going on as opposed to like you know turning on it part of me wonders if like the second ikuhara anyone sees is the one they fall in love with because the first one's <laughs> just weird and strange but you sort of appreciate it and then the second one you, you're declued into his stylistic leanings and you go and you get where he's coming from and you you're in from day one which for me was penguin drone which i i do which i i know as an immensely flawed work but i i love in a way which i don't love utina um yeah well i do i also do wonder because the thing that the thing that utina is always compared to is evangelion because they are both extremely like symbolic uh 
allegorical deconstructions of their respective genres. And I think for a lot of anime fans, they simply lack the literacy in shoujo tropes to understand what's being subverted while... I mean, most most anime fans, I won't say most, a lot of anime fans are male and a lot of anime fans uh, in America come to it through like Trigon, Cowboy Bebop, Outlaw Star. So they already have the like the trope literacy to understand what Evangelion is doing on the broad on the broad level. But how many male anime fans have watched Sailor Moon or Rose of Versailles mm-hmm. or whatever? And so I think that a lot of people it it seems even more weird because it's a completely different like trope language, even though they are largely, I think talking about the same thing. We can get into that later. Um, and so it's the first time you're encountering all these things. Nothing makes sense. And some obvious things are treated, treated very obscurely and vice versa. Um, so we will have to unpack that just real quick. Cause I know that Jeff had asked before we begin the podcast uh, that uh, where did Revolutionary Girl is going to come from. And it came from a artist collective uh, that was compo- comprised that uh, comprised uh, Ikuhara and I think four other people. Uh, I'll post a link about them in the, in the show notes. Uh, and it was kind of like a thing that was done often in the 90s of kind of planning a multimedia blitz of doing a anime, a manga, often a stage play or a video game, uh, art books, and that sort of thing, radio drama or audio CD drama. Uh, and uh, I do think that Evangelion was the more successful of those efforts, <laughs> uh, except for the manga, which just finished like two years ago. Uh, but uh, so it was just kind of like this idea that you could just tell the same story simultaneously in a lot of different mediums uh, and kind of get a different versions of it and different members of the same like art collective or production committee could kind of explore that and in fact the manga the anime and the movie all are very different even down to characters sexualities and motivations Hmm. um and one of those sounds more important than the other but utna is also (laughs) what's the romantic version of horny jeff if anyone knows that you do uh isn't that isn't that just still horny (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, so yeah, so I think that what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and I'll run through a quick synopsis of the plot. We'll talk about the plot and characters, the, uh, the literal levels that Revolutionary Revolution is working on, and then we'll move on to the more metaphorical levels, trying to keep a rough chronological adherence, but if you've got a good idea, please speak up. We'll just make the editor have a a worse life in fixing the coherency. Uh, so... Our show begins uh, with a, with a uh, fairy tale flashback to this young girl uh, who is in despair over the death of both of her parents. She is rescued uh, from it by a older prince who admires her moral fiber and composure and gives her a rose ring. And uh the girl therefore decides to grow up to become a prince. Like you do. And then we cut forward to uh, six years later when the girl, now 14 years old, uh, is attending Otori Academy and uh, and is kind of starts out as like the admired. This is one of the things I think about with Shoujo is that like a character who's just like really well liked by everybody is a lot more common than in Shonen and Seinen. Mm-hmm. 
anime. So she's the she dresses in a men's uniform and successfully antagonizes and owns one of the teachers who tries to be like, you can't wear a guy's uniform. And she's got a friend who's very close to her named Wakaba, who's extremely normal. Um, and <laughs> by the show standards, yeah, because yes, by the show standards, yes, I'm extremely sure. normal. That's, yeah, uh, but uh, she. <laughs> But uh, Wakaba is humiliated by an older student named Sayanji who posts her love letter uh, to him where everyone can laugh at it. So she challenges him to a duel and they get transported to a weird arena where they fight. And uh, because of the mystical interfer- interference of a ghostly prince who looks strangely like this prince from the uh, flashback, uh, from a castle that's inverted in the sky, she defeats Sayanji and wins as a prize what she thought was Sayanji's girlfriend, uh, a girl named Anthi Himemia, who is very quiet and passive and obliging, and discovers that the student council, which controls the school, Jeff's favorite yeah. trope, uh, is <laughs> is actually all involved of people wearing these rings like the like the prince gave her and that they receive letters from a mysterious individual named end of the world instructing them to assemble and do things and occasionally fight duels and so she fights her way through the rest of the student council members uh a young piano genius who has an obsession with stopwatches who hopes that he can use anthe to recapture the bond that he had with his twin sister uh there's some Nanami shit, which we'll get into, I think, in a bit. Uh, the younger sister of the student council president. Uh, but uh, after that, she confronts a... She's like the treasurer or some shit, Jury, who is an ace duelist and wants to defeat Utna to crush her belief in miracles to show her that magic doesn't exist in the world. Clearly best girl. Uh, possi- possibly my favorite episode of the entire show. <laughs> uh, and... Then Sanji, after finding out that Sanji is fucked up in part because he's been emotionally abused by his by his peer and friend, the student council president Toga, that's, uh, that's an understatement. Sanji is yeah. yes, Sanji is manipulated into challenging Utena to a duel outside the bounds of the duel structure and is punished. But Toga intervenes at the last minute, mysteriously, uh, and then after Nanami. Uh, Toga's younger sister, again, uh, is manipulated into fighting a duel with uh, Utena. Then Toga himself fights a duel where he impersonates the prince from her childhood and successfully breaks her spirit and defeats her. And Utena is thrown into a into a depression that Wakaba brings her out of by asserting um, that... Utena's desire to be normal after being defeated by Toga is not normal. It's not normal to want to be normal. <laughs> um, and Utena comes back and defeats Toga, and that's the end of the first arc, Despite, <laughs> except for the, uh, the recap, which in the tradition of mid-90s recap episodes has a lot more plot and character stuff in it than I, than I think that they usually mm-hmm. do. Like, introduces the one of the, like mysterious figures Akio the acting interim headmaster for the school and his relationship with Dios the ghostly prince who 
possesses Ujin is that she can win fights that she's always outclassed with. Mm-hmm. And also, it, it adds a whole framing device to the first season that was kind of just a string yes. of <laughs> duels before. Yes, the seven duels, friendship. I don't remember the second one. It was like friendship, choice. Uh, yeah, friendship, reason. choice. Uh, reason, love, uh, adoration, conviction. and self. Oh, yeah, and self. Yes, conviction and self. So, yeah. So we will go for Jeff for fresh impressions mm-hmm. and then Duncan for mostly fresh impressions. What did you think of this as a story with characters and events? <laughs> um, I, when it began, <laughs> it, it read a lot like a pretty standard, like, I, w- I would say like standard anime. Like it was still weird and it still had a lot of eccentricities, but everybody was like very recognizably like Sanji is like very recognizably the first, like the first villain. Like if you had watched Sailor Moon, like there was like a string of sort of like antagonists that were, you know, in- under control by the, the bad queen. And like Sanji sort of like hits all the notes of like, he's the generic first bad guy. He's just bad. And you don't like him. And you just want to, you just want to yeah. see him lose. <laughs> And then Nanami is introduced as sort of like the the very rote like mean girl who's just there to like humiliate the the main characters and be bad and make you hate her. And then the show sort of like gets a little bit more interesting. They introduce Mickey, who is a you know, by all you know, by all kills, like he he's just like sort of a nice kid and, you know he's well liked yeah, he's, kind he's of, mostly just he's kind of friends with utana mm-hmm. besides the duels so yeah and <laughs> they also i mean they also start doing a lot more sort of like you know they're friends and they're just people at school like i think it's like the fourth or fifth episode where like because she's been fighting in duels in the middle of the night utana is doing badly in school and so mickey agrees <laughs> to help tutor her because she he's one of the best students in the school and then you just get like a whole episode about them having a study group and then nanami shows up and her and she just like has all of these like really weird petty plans to like have everybody turn on anchi because she's just <laughs> like you know incapable of having people like anybody for whatever reason, so just, like I can't, like I can't. Nanami has Nanami has self worth and uh, insecurity issues, definitely. Yeah. But then they, you know, she's like all of her plans are upended by the fact that, like, you know, she's gonna like hide a snail in Anshi's uh, pencil case and then reveal it and go, oh my god! And she's just like imagining everybody, you know, turning on at the immediately. It's like, oh, you're so weird. And she opens up the pencil case and it's like chock-a-block full of snails and it makes everybody else like her more and like they just like keep doing that joke and it just it just kept landing for me um and then yeah yeah it's it's funny that they introduce nanami in the third episode where she's got this really complicated plan to humiliate anthe by giving her a dress that melts when it's when champagne is is yeah sprayed on it and then having anthe have to like basically be stripped naked in the middle of a, a social ball and that's the last time that nanami is really effective at anything mm-hmm. besides the flashback of her murdering a kitten yeah. so and yeah and then because because the kitten because the his brother her, her brother loved the kitten more than her she felt so that's why she murdered yeah. it because 
Nanami character notes, hashtag. <laughs> and, yeah, and then just, like, things kind of get more interesting because, like, the lines between, like, who are friends and who are enemies start getting blurred really well. Uh, Sanji, you know, he he disappears for a few episodes and people sort of mention, like, oh, he's locked himself in the dojo. He's just practicing his sword play. And then he just kind of, like, slowly get, starts getting int- reintroduced as this sort of, like, sad, lovesick character who just, like, wants his old girlfriend back. And you start getting more, you know, into his past and it's and 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 as the show progresses, like, you know, the the different sort of uh, like thematic elements start getting dripped in and it gets a lot more interesting than your standard like villain of the week uh like shoujo kids show like a sailor moon gets like fairly quickly like it starts out like you it could almost be a sailor moon show in the very beginning but by the end it gets a lot more interesting well what people oftentimes talk about they they always talk about if you want to be dismissive of revolution or galutina on the internet which some people obviously want to do because it's the internet uh what you do is you say you just you know sniff and like oh it's it's rose of versailles with with magic powers <laughs> yeah we don't um and i can't stop me because I, I haven't seen that show <laughs> <laughs> uh but uh well, I mean, just anything to be like, oh, this is like, this show is actually very derivative. But I think that it does use the Rose of Versailles framework to kind of build something. And when I first watched the show, I wasn't really taken with the first arc. It just seemed like, oh, it's a it's a it's instead of a shonen battler, it's a shoujo battler. Mm-hmm. I get it. Um, and I think that that the Black Rose saga is where that really begins to change and shows how incredibly psychological. But rewatching it several times, um, I'm really impressed by how like from from jump minus the the nanami filler episodes where she has to you know find uh six million fold curry or uh gets well she gets turned into a cow later she gets turned into a cow later um someone's trying to kill her and ends up being like a a fourth grader with a crush on her yeah lots of nanami nanami episodes but beyond those it's it's very psychological and like i said i think that jury's episode is absolutely a masterpiece it's almost standalone and the resolution itself like makes me tear up when she's just like aha you see there are no miracles after she's disarmed and then the sword just falls perfectly and in the moment before it hits it cuts to like falling but like falling between the two people who uh, are the other parts of the love triangle that's basically left her such a a bitter person despite being probably the most like brave and noble and forthright person in the student council Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's kind of a rogues gallery of shitheads (laughs) um but but yeah no i do think that there like there is a really like dense psychology that begins revealing itself with mick with uh, mickey because you don't usually have your uh your next duelist after after the initial bad guy be like a nice guy who's helping you with your math homework mm-hmm. so and not like secretly like evilly gonna like mess up your math no he just wants to help out yeah. he also misses his his floozy sister a lot apparently uh-huh. so um yeah so duncan how about you um let's see i mean <laughs> i think as a just a surface level plot it benefits from having a relatively tight cast i don't think it spends too much time doing like the only person who seems to get 
time with them which isn't spent saying something about them is Nanami, who just seems to get what what uh, unless what we're saying is that she's just frivolous and throwaway, which maybe, but I, no, I mean, I mean, later on she does she does develop into something, but right now she is like the one comic relief character among a group of very serious people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess walk up as comic relief too. But even she gets her 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 moment of pain and hurt, and is the person who gets to pull Utena out of her her depression in the end and so i i it's not it's very i wouldn't say tight writing but it's not wasteful there's there's not much stuff going on which doesn't relate to telling us about these characters and moving well not uh, and i don't think it really moves the plot forward it tells it tells us about why these characters want to fight for this nebulous thing, but it doesn't tell us much about that nebulous thing at this point, anyway. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into a bit of that with the with the more thematic discussion about what does revolution and apocalypse and the end of the world signify. Mm-hmm. But but yes, it is it is something that everyone just takes as given that exists, and and Utena's continual like confusion about like. Oh, I don't care about that. I just like y'all treat y'all treat Auntie really bad. So mm-hmm. I I figure I'd fight for that. And they're like, oh, don't you want to you know revolutionize the world? And she's like, no, not not really. Yeah. No. But like you've you've kind of like kind of raised my main problem with season one of Utina there, and that's Auntie. I first time I really bounced off her badly as a character, and I still just on this the. 13 episode arc she she comes across as not particularly a nice character in this this arc to me despite her it's, that's okay <laughs> i know but it's like uh, I, you're, you're, the expectation you like uh, as we'll, we'll get into is like the expectation is the princess to be registered has to registered the princess <laughs> to be rescued too much politics yeah <laughs> too much politics the princess to be rescued is normally a good person who does who everything all the bad things which are happening she abets them she do, she is not blameless she is not yes a pure nice good person she may be passive, but that passivity leads to her doing nasty things and even within that even within her passivity there's there's clear moments of manipulation of those who she has given the impression that she is being passive towards when in fact she is not she is provoking and she is subverting and like if this was like uh uh, another thing I'd start thinking oh is this the villain and well I don't know she, she's she's the character who who I was most conflicted and confused about at, on first watch and, and coming back to this now after such a long gap I'm I still find my 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 response to her after this first arc that 
she just doesn't seem very nice. <laughs> should, should, should we go I, into I mean, this right I, now? Because I have a lot of yeah, of anti-sauce yeah, as well. well just just uh, let me respond really quick, because I, I do think when we were talking about this before briefly, um, I had mentioned uh, how I feel like Anthe is attacking this a lot of the same like cultural nexes as Ray in end of Evan, I mean, not well, also end in Evangelion does, uh, where we have we have these these ideals of of passive reactive womanhood, and for once, I think that Evangelion takes the more positive angle <laughs> is that there's a person under all that, and I think that Anthe at least in the first season because. A lot of what you said, I think, is very exciting for when we get to the apocalypse arc. Um, but I think that Anthe is also like, what if there isn't a person under there? What if, like, th- I mean, the barest flickers we get to is is Utena actually believing that she's like a person with her own inner life causes her doubt, which causes Toga's sword to stop spitting fire, which causes him to lose because apparently he's not that great of a duelist if he doesn't have a magic fire sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that there is like this idea of like of like who is on the under the rose bride and the fact that they, they undermine you constantly throughout the, the first season with characters who are very well informed about about the power to revolutionize and the end of the world and all that. Oh, excuse me. End of the world, not the end of the <laughs> world. Uh like are complete like Toga is completely confident that there's like there's no one in there. She's just the Rose Bride. There's not really Anthe Himemia. Um and even Sayanji, even though like he he does have underneath all that like toxicity and abuse and insecurity, um, he does seem to like care about her a lot. The the gag of the, the exchange diary that they mm-hmm. have. Um, which is somewhat confused because uh, episodes six and eight were transposed because of production issues, which means that we're inter- we're introduced to jokes about the exchange diary before we're introduced to it seriously. Okay, yeah, because like uh, I was gonna say, like I really that I really love the the reveal of the exchange diary earlier and then the explanation of what it is later. I thought that was really good. <laughs> well, that's kismet then, but um, but you can tell that like that Sionji wants to like understand who Anthe is but I, th- I think he's too like insecure and caught up in his weird masculinity to actually like see who Anthe is if there is anyone in Anthe so I do think that I did not have that ambivalence when I first watched this show I think it's interesting and good that you do Duncan because I think that I think that the way that the show breaks up into Utena as like the like masculine proactive confident character and Anthe as the passive the passive retiring obliging um reactive character yeah, I yeah. Mean, it partly perhaps comes from my tendency to over analyze visual language because there's like this one shot uh, it's either episode two or three where uh Utena, it cuts Utena's but just been talking to Anthony and Anthony's like being evasive and stuff as as normal and, and like she she says something to Utena Utena accepts it and sort of goes back to playing with Choo Choo which is uh, Anthony's best friend who is a tiny <laughs> monkey yeah. Yes, we haven't even brought up Choo Choo. Uh, her only friend, really. Because mm-hmm. when, when Utena is pressing her, like, do you have friends? And she's like, yep, got one right here. Yeah. I'm good. But the thing <laughs> is, the, the, the visual language which happens next is camera cuts away from Anthe to Utena, 
cuts back to Anthe, her eyes narrow, and she smiles. And that, to me, just goes, evil, 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 plotting, <laughs> plotting, plotting. And, like, that, that, that's, that's like the, the villain is revealed shot, the, the mastermind behind. And, no, I'm a, that's not necessarily what it means, because I overanalyze these things as we have... I think I know Just the shot you're talking about, and I always read that in anime, at least, as the like the kindly mother, happy that her yeah. family is happy face. <laughs> yeah, content. It, it reads as contentment to me, but the way that they do these like incredibly like huge jewel like eyes for all the characters in in it does mean that there is just a there's different connotations for stock visual language because mm-hmm. like. If we can talk briefly about the visuals, I think this show is visually stunning. Yeah, and I was can, absolutely. Can, can, can we talk a little bit more about Anthony first? Yes, yes. Sorry, no, <laughs> please. Good. I can always switch over to talking about visuals, so we can come back to that later. Because okay. yeah, like one of the things that really yeah, theory, theory, yes, Jeff. Oh, yeah, was, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and like stay away from the theory until later. I just wanted to say that the <laughs> like the revelations of Anthony throughout the show, throughout the first arc, anyways, um, I, is one of the things that kept me going um, because she's introduced as you know this sort of very obliging sort of shrinking violet you know she very obediently goes and becomes uh utina's you know fiance in her own words uh you know they start living together they're friends and you know this is what provokes uh seonji to you know challenge her to the second duel because he wants her back and you just read him as this Mm -hmm. like oh he's just this like possessive asshole he sucks and then you know he you know, Seiji goes into this deep depression, and then you find out about the exchange journal, and be, uh, during the body swap episode, because so there's an episode where they, you know, due to Curry, Utena and Anthe <laughs> uh, swap bodies, and so you know this is used for lots of you know mistaken identity jokes and things like that and one of those is that Seonji approaches Anthe or Utena in Anthe's body with the exchange journal saying oh I want you to I want to keep doing this and she you know she's kind of obliging and she asks you know she takes it and then asks uh, Anthe you know in Utena's body what's going on she's like oh uh, this is just a thing we were doing I'll stop doing it now if you want me to and she just like throws it in the trash and even Utena is kind uh-huh. of like taken back by that, and you, and then, you know that's the first hint. It's like, oh, you know, she's just like, you know, was she manipulating him? Um, but you learn later from Toga that you know Anthe is basically she is whoever her fiance wants her to be, and yeah. so I'll, you know even with in cases like with Mickey, he thinks he can recapture a thing from her past from his past by making her become his fiance and jury wants to you know in her own way she wants to uh you know undo other people's faith in miracles uh by also possessing it by also possessing her and like you and you it's never really clear what Anthe's position is on any of this but one thing I've like because Choo Choo is introduced as this just kind of like shitty little comedic (laughs) you know comedic uh relief character in the first couple of episodes but him being uh Anthe's only uh consistent companion you can sort of get a sense of what's going on from him because he will frequently be stress eating 
uh, when she <laughs> is, you know, when, you know, Anthony is just like, oh, everything's fine. Like, I, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm the Rose Bride. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. But you can definitely tell that, you know, Choo Choo thinks something is up. And he is, you know, being the consistent person in her life. Like, he is at ease when she is with Otena. And he is stressed out and angry when she isn't. And so you get the sense that, like, okay, this is not strictly Anthe's, you know, own individuality coming across as, like, oh, she's mm-hmm. just this manipulative bad person. You know, there is something else going on here. And I think a big part of what the show is about is exploring, you know, this person's emergence into being a person. Yeah, th- that's interesting because I've just, I've just remembered that the look from Anthe... He is when Uten is feeding Choo Choo strawberries, and and like so, maybe you are right to see it as as like happiness because like her her little representation of herself is being fed strawberries. So, <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting that when when uh, Toga takes uh, Anthe from Utena. Uh, Choo Choo has a one of those like old fashioned like <laughs> knapsack style things, and it's it, it's revealed to be just full of crackers yeah. that he eats nonstop. When with Toga, who Toga treats her just literally like an object, he's just like stay there until I come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and he thinks it's like dumb and disgusting that Auntie cooks for for Utena, um, even though Utena has decided with minimal communication from Auntie that Auntie likes to cook because she does. Um, she does cook, not that she does like it. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know. I think that I think that the question is introduced, and this is something that will be explored minimally, um, but nonetheless substantively through the next arc. Um, it's just like someone who will always agree with you, how do you find out what they want? Mm-hmm. And there are these small signs, but also just like how, how much of Auntie is inside there, and is it changing, is it growing, or is her bond, to her like aliveness to Utena's opinions just deepening where she's becoming more intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the discomfort of Anthe and the interesting thing is when uh, the interesting thing, when um, Utena is depressed of Anthe and you ha- she has to have Wakaba step in and kind of fulfill the joking girlfriend, joking scare quotes. Who knows? This is a, a pretty gay show. Yeah. We should go into that when it comes to themes. Uh, but when she steps into the, the female role and then actually, acts out against how Anthe would act where she's like, this is bullshit. You're, this isn't you stop wearing that, that uniform. It's freaky. Uh, cause Uchina changes into a girl's uniform after she's defeated, mm-hmm. uh, because she's so demoralized by, uh, yeah. Toga's she's asshole. So depressed antics. that she becomes straight. It's, it's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so let's run through the other characters uh, really quick. Uh, does anyone have any reactions about Tinjo Utena? Um, a lot of the names are actually we, we can cover this as we go through them, but a lot of the names have uh, have extra meanings. Like Himamiya literally means shrine princess. Yeah, Tenjo um, is like heaven Tenj- girl. Uh, it's it's a, dif- it's a different Joe. So heaven it's above heaven, Earth, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I only know this because so, a, a girl in a series which may ape a lot of uh, Utena <laughs> has also a, has a ten do, not a ten jo. And so I, I, I was like, oh, is she named after her? I'll look up what their names mean. And it's, oh, okay, so that's those differences. <laughs> yes, and um, you haven't met Akio Otori, uh, the acting head. Well, you mean you did in the last episode, I guess. Um, but his first name is part of the word for the morning star, as in Lucifer, yeah. and his last name is 
male phoenix oh tori as like we've watched tino tori if you remember <laughs> so like a lot of kind of fraught grand names and of course there's Ju- jury who should be julie and i will say that to my dying breath her name should be julie not jury it's dumb <laughs> uh <laughs> Uh, but, uh, so yeah, do we have any reactions about like Utena? We can go through Utena. How do you feel about Utena? Uh, how does she feel about a, as a protagonist? Is she just a, a tomboy who likes to fight? As a, I mean, as a protagonist, I think she's perfect for this show because she is <laughs> like, she, you know, she is a self-proclaimed prince who is also like surrounded by people who have also adapted or adopted very sort of noble, like trappings and toga especially who you know very deliberately you know portrays himself as being this very obliging very chivalrous young man but it's all a show it's all just aesthetic whereas for utana it is it is who she is and you know that's why that episode where she's told to go you know told to be normal and she stops being that and it's so against her character that she has to you know return to her old self and compared to all of the other characters she is you know she's the you know she's the prince who wants to free the princess whereas everybody else wants to instrumentalize the princess and yes. so her being such a straightforward character is i think necessary for the show because everybody else while having you know more or less noble intentions in their own minds all fall victim to the same evil whereas utena is the only one who you know is fighting against that yeah yeah it's refreshing to have a character who's not like plotting when all of the student council even mickey and jury are like plotting and have plans and there's a great line at the end when uh jury asks toga if uh how he beat her and he's like oh you don't think i was just better than her and she's like no plot seems more like you <laughs> and he's i don't know if this i have I, I, I think oh, I don't know if this is the right place to bring it in or not, but you, you whatever you, you mention um, the, the, the what determines a win in the fights, and I think the first couple of episodes in Utena are very much about establishing that it's not skill that wins these bat duels. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. And it's something which, as as you mentioned earlier, almost comes to its apex in Jury's episode, mm-hmm. where it, it she she is by far the the most skilled, and f- f- but fate says no, and because yes. it's kind of like a you can probably speak to this Ben that it's like a medieval trial by combat where it is accepted that the outcome is the will of God. And whoever, yeah. well, I mean, they're being they're being watched over by a little literal fairy tale castle inhabited by a prince, mm-hmm. uh, basically. When they do fight these fights, so there is some sort of divine right yeah. in what in what comes down. And, when, and, so, and they're and also so, staged like, like no dramas too, where they have uh, like the song, like the song that's kind of just like nonsense, and the, a lot of the way that it's staged. And this in later later uh, the later sagas becomes even more that they they become like these kind of allegories where people just happen to be fighting in the middle of them. Yeah, and the like so, the actual mechanics of the the duels. I don't know if we actually described it. Everybody wears a uh, a rose on their lapel, and whoever loses the rose is who loses the duel like they can be injured and everything yeah. else but if they still have the rose they're still good to go uh and yeah. you know when jury loses the sword literally falls out of the sky oh, so and good. goes through her you know and pierces the rose just as she's about to beat utina and so yeah 
like you know it doesn't matter how it happens even if it's a miracle you know the fact that you know it you know that a miracle saves utena is again like you know in a different show it would read as hacky but in this it's utterly like necessary I mean, I didn't. I didn't even really see it coming, and part of that's just because of how intricately the fight is. That fight is animated. That fight, I think, has like a lot more like foot and hand work than any of yeah. the other duels mm-hmm. in yeah. the arc of where of like her like using the hilt to like twist Utena's sword out of the yeah. way, and the way she like grabs and pushes her when they get too close for her to actually like use any of her footwork. Yeah, it's, yeah. so you can see this person's really competent, and therefore, just like Jury, you don't see the sword falling perfectly down and transfixing the rose. Yeah, which yeah. is also, you know, most of the other duels come down to, they run at each other and then it does the very, like, samurai they, they pass by each other and then one of them falls down or one of their one of their roses falls down. Just explodes yeah. into explodes into petals. Um, but this, yeah, is the one where it's it's almost like Jury owned herself yeah. <laughs> because if she refused to believe in these miracles, she did not see it coming. Mm-hmm. Just on jury a bit more, like yeah. Since we've got there, yeah. uh, voiced by Katono Mitsuishi, so um, Misato and Sailor Moon. Um, that's the same voice actress. Mm. I sort of feel like Jury wants to win, part not just because she obviously she doesn't believe in miracles because of what's ha- the way f- she feels fate has treated her in the past, but it's also yeah. so, I. I got the feeling that she feels like she wants to prove it to everyone else and and the way she she will do that is she will win despite being unworthy mm-hmm. and because she an unworthy person has won that just proves that there's any justice in the world and or any fate and like in some ways it's almost a happy ending for her that she loses yeah, no, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to y'all to y'all watch later later arcs. I mean, this is going to be a lot of this in this podcast. I can't wait to watch later arcs because I do think that episode seven, I think, is the jury episode, is a complete story. But it keeps going after, as you said, Duncan. Like she's had her happy ending of where she uses this her like her prowess and skill and determination to try to like explode the idea of of miracles or a plan, and she fails. And therefore, what happened? Um, what happened between her and Ruka, her uh, her senior on the fencing team, and Shiori, her friend, and the other point of the love triangle, which is a perfect love triangle, and that it it moves. Uh, it there's not two people in love with one person. Everybody in love is in love with someone who's not in love with them. Um, but but even though she shows that that this was not that there's no way that she could have done anything about this. She's proven wrong. Like miracles can happen. Swords can fall out of the blue. Um, you could have told her your feelings instead of whatever the fuck you did do. Hmm. So, yeah, but yeah, no, I like, I like jury a lot. And I think she's also got a very, very mid nineties shoujo design too, <laughs> with these like magnificent ringlet, ringleted hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, stuff that I know for cosplayers, they have to oftentimes involves uh, wrapping the wig around uh, toilet paper tubes and then and then uh, covering it in hairspray and blow drying it super hot to get these like extremely stiff, stiff ringlets. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she also wears she also doesn't wear a uh, uh, a traditional women's uh, school uniform, but no one seems to care, I guess. <laughs> 
because she's got a sword all the time. So it's hard to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've already touched a bit on on Mickey. Yeah. Gonna, Are we going to go back to to Jury? No, or I was going to talk actually, about link with the two in that I think Jury adopts quite a motherly attitude to Mickey as the the art goes on like <laughs> well they have to have solidarity against the two dudes on the student council uh who are best friends the, and also good, best enemies the good ones and the and and the two good ones and the two assholes i think i think yeah. it's i think it's a deep misreading to think that mickey is a good person <laughs> or at least he so all right let's talk about mickey yeah. yeah, let's talk about Mickey. Right, so, I didn't think we had much to talk about, but apparently we do. So, so Mickey is like he, he like his you know purported raison d'etre is that he wants to recapture the magic of playing piano with his sister when he was a kid, and he was saying that like she was such a she was such a phenom that I would basically just play to try to keep up with her, and you know one day there was a you know she was afraid of. Uh, of playing in public and then I convinced her to do a concert and then I got sick and she went on her own and you know she was so traumatized by this that she never played again and he's trying she to... ran away from the piano which is something that happens with a weird frequency in anime I feel like it's just to run away from a concert mm-hmm. that was never that was never on the table when I had a concert let me just put it that way <laughs> and uh... and at the and then you know his his motivation for wanting to make Anthe his rose bride is that Anthony also is, you know, phenomenal at the piano and he and reminds her, him and her piano reminds Mickey of his sisters. And so he just wants that feeling back. That's, you know, he all of the characters have like a very, you know, their their motivation comes down to like like a very sort of idiosyncratic thing where like Sanji says he wants something that's eternal. Mickey says he wants that shining thing from his past back. And later on his sister, you know, basically, you know, tells one of her friends that like, I was never very good at the piano. Mickey's just so good at it that my plunking, he would just play to match that and it would sound good. And so you get the sense that Mickey has like a very, sort of warped view of the world where he sort of externalizes all the good things in his, you know, or like imposes, you know, so many things about himself into the world and then lives as though he is just living in there. Whereas in reality, he is imposing things on people that don't want it. Uh, His sister being one and then Anthony being another. And even though he, you know, he wants to, you know, he wants to, he wants to think of himself as somebody who's helping. Like that's one of the reasons why he helps Utena with her schoolwork. Um, but his motivations are more like self-deceptive and also sort of self-aggrandizing. I think uh, that is an interesting read. I I don't think that it will be borne out for you in later episodes, mm-hmm. but I do think that you're correct to point out that like Mickey sees himself as a passive character when he is in fact not, mm-hmm. um, and that he understands. We'll get we'll get more <laughs> when we when we see more of his sister later on. Um, but I think that what oftentimes Mickey sees is he, is he sees as unilateral things that are actually bilateral mm. and that he, he sees himself as devoted to his sister who didn't give a shit. And then what we find out is that like, Oh, I, I, I actually didn't like the piano I played because Mickey likes to play. Um, and it's hard to, to determine how much of that is like active pernicious self-deception, how much of that is being 
being 12 or 13 years old, yeah. uh, which is easy to forget that um, like a lot of these people are. And that's actually one of the points. Usually that would be a, a weird out of nowhere thing to be like, remember, these people are young. But I do think that being being caught in this, you know, moment of formation of identity, of adolescence, of blossoming is actually important to these characters. Is that these are all people who have been frozen in transition in some way, both in terms of how their characters are constructed and also like what will become much more obvious later on is that Otori Academy is kind of limbo and I think that that's reinforced by how so many of the locations are just these half-built exposed structures like where they eat lunch near the end of the uh near the end of the first arc where it's literally just like a colonnade and an empty courtyard that's like surrounded by blue sky there's no ground in sight Mm -hmm. um that you do have this idea of this kind of liminal space to borrow Susan Napier's reading of Revolutionary Girl that there, there is like this this transition. And so right now, Mickey is at a point where he is able to appreciate his own desires, um, but does not actually perceive how those desires interact with the other people. Mm. And I do think it's also important that like Toga baits him into, into dueling Utena. Uh, Mickey's like, Oh, I'm just fine watching from afar. Like she reminds me of my sister. That's nice. And Toga's like, no, you should, you should go for it, bro. Yeah. God, um, should we get onto, <laughs> onto him now? Yeah. Toga's a monster. What a, what a absolute <laughs> scumbag. Like, like we we're go- I think <laughs> if we're gonna do Togo, we should do like Sionji at the same time because yeah, probably we have to. Oh, before we move on completely from Jury, I do want to say that Mamoru Hosoda is the storyboardist for uh, Jury's episode. Cool. That's the one that he does in the first season. He does a lot more in the second, which is my favorite season <laughs> or core. <laughs> so, but yes, Toga and Sionji, two best buds that just you know love crashing funerals and playing around and coffins and having increasingly futile kindle du- kindo duels and yeah right so what do you mean by calling him a scumbag duncan I'm i almost mean, called you toga like, which would be <laughs> podcast ending is the single most manipulative character of this arc by a country mile mm. like <laughs> and we get a sense that we're not even seeing the full extent of it that mm-hmm. Jury to an extent, Mickey to a probably larger extent. I think actually that's that's something worth mentioning. Like you get the sense that Jury gets a sense of that uh, Togo is, is manipulating them all, and in a way that Mickey, Utena uh, do not, uh, and certainly Sionji does not. Because <laughs> dear, dear me, never has someone been just. It's like teenage, like as young teenagers, as one of them just decided, how can I make a monster out of my friend? (laughs) And then just went slowly about just making him into this absolute horrible person when I'm not sure that we're shown any evidence of of that in him in his earlier development he what we see of him when Sanji when he's young is is more a um a starry-eyed devotion to to T- Togo and and it's like clearly what this person wanted to, wants to do is whatever makes this other one um give him praise and do and 
say yes well done you're my friend and when we see see his 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 complete eat version it's just someone made to be uh the heel so that toga can play the prince mm-hmm. yeah there's a there's a lot of kind of just general subculture stuff going on between Toga and Sanji where they kind of almost have a semi-uke relationship yeah. where you have the the confident capable Toga and like the needy incomplete obliging Sanji but at the same time there's also like the divide I'll have to find the blog post where this comes from between like a like Toga as like the like easygoing kind of more modern ladies man and then the like the hard traditional manly Sayanji that you have that they do seem like two sides of the same incomplete fucked up person and one of the things that I didn't know about until I was doing some reading some article reading um, is that they'd originally planned to have Toga's backstory revealed it never really gets revealed in the anime um, but they'd originally planned to have a trigger warning here for sexual violence they'd planned to have him uh in his as a child he was raped by his stepfather um and that's why like everything's about controlling people and using sex as a weapon because that's that's the masculinity that was modeled for him mm. but without that context he's just a monster um yep. who who seems to be able he seems to have like he seems to genuinely be fond of like nanami um and yet at the same time uh, I'm not sure. knows exactly <laughs> knows like exactly how to make her do whatever she wants. It's hard to perceive a version of Toga that does not have that is where the manipulating and these tiny like these completely meaningless plots and schemes. Like he manipulates people to do stuff that they'd probably already do anyway, but he just wants to be in control. Mm-hmm. And like you can imagine an entire youth of being friends with this guy is is the most brutal pervasive gaslighting that that could be like yeah like if Sionji he he practices kenjo with, with Sionji because he knows he can win and so he's just going to destroy this person's self-esteem when he's already a pretty like needy wanting person like uh it's it's really interesting and i think the show goes on to continue to complicate our feelings about Sionji while i think that that Toga simply acts as the show's main villain until we, until Akio uh, starts being more active yeah, and, in this second core. And also, you know, similar with Nanami, who's portrayed as having this like really creepy older brother complex. You also get the one of the more one of the more blatant ones in anime history, where like she wants she she's DTF Toga. Yeah, but so. also the fact that that it's Toga makes you think that you know how innocent is Toga in all of this. Like yeah. you get the sense that like he's probably been doing to her unconsciously what he's been doing consciously to everybody else her whole life. And yeah, you do you do wonder because there is the birthday flashback with the infamous kitten that Nanami gives him where you can tell that like their parents suck Mm -hmm. (laughs) because she comes in like kind of dirty with a box and they like immediately like want the box taken away and her shipped off to clean and Toka has to intervene to protect his little sister from his shitty parents and like that (laughs) oh someone's disagreeing it's like maybe i'm just so cynical of his motivations after his latter behaviors but part of me thinks toga would not be averse of putting a kitten in a box and leaving it for her to find (laughs) 
uh, I feel like that reaches out beyond the text to just like a dislike of Toga as a person. Uh, He seemed to like the cat. He got mad at Nanami when the cat, when she slapped the cat for biting it, for biting him. Mm -hmm. Nanami's favored weapon, the slap. I mean, the show, in fact, like a lot of people get slapped all the time. Yeah, I think Anthony actually gets slapped in every episode. (laughs) Except for the, well, there's the, uh, the body swap episode where it's, where it's, Utena in Anthi's body and she slaps slaps him back which is mm-hmm. a weird way of just showing you the difference between Anthi and Utena is that yeah. <laughs> immediately Utena's just like yeah. you don't slap me I yeah. slap you <laughs> I am the one who knocks yeah he's he's he is definitely someone who looks at who you you are very quickly shown it's that his attitude to everyone around him is how can I use this person and so yeah mm-hmm. and I think that's the major axis along which good and evil is defined in this show is the willingness to to manipulate and use other people versus like allowing other people to build and grow upon themselves. Are we getting like the Utina D and D alignment arc? And, like, <laughs> uh, like an alignment chart for all the characters. Oh, that'd be good. I don't know if I could even put it together, but it would be good. Oh, true neutral uh, is Anthe, obviously. <laughs> uh, so that's, is that everybody? I think. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, there's, like, the gag characters, like the, the teacher that complains a lot um, about Utena. Oh, and the, uh, the, the, the Kageko twins. Yes, we, I mean, I feel like talking about the Kageko is a natural yeah. segue into talking about, like, themes and motifs and, like, production details. Because the Kageko, while they are characters, we have Eiko, Biko, and Seiko. Um, but the Shadow Girls and the weird, like greek chorus plays that they put on um are definitely one of the more obvious metaphorical elements they're up there with like mickey's stopwatch which if you want to read some bad fan theories jeff (laughs) just go online and like google what does mickey's stopwatch mean and there's a lot of people talking about like basically numerology about how they can like unpick the reality of otori academy based on what those numbers mean and when when they're displayed so (laughs) um but the kakako which are will always be my favorite part of the series is they're like, they're like dumb, they're dumb skits that often just aren't very funny, but the fact that they're reliable and they're performed with like these goofy voices and there's all these like presentational elements that reinforce their artificiality. Like I think he posted a gift way back in the beginning of the second episode skit where they're cowboys riding on horses. And at one point, like a hand comes in front of the, yeah, with the, the camera with a cactus in a pot yeah. to like, cause they're walking past it. Um, I, I don't know. Like what's your reaction to the, to the shadow girls and their, uh, Kashira, Kashira, Gonzonji Kashira. <laughs> uh, I mean, for myself, like I, for the, at first they were basically just like a welcome like sort of breath of fresh air because like the first couple of episodes are very sort of kind of self-serious it's hard to know what the you know where the show is going to go and as the show progresses like the the play seemed to have less and less and less to do with what's actually happening in the show uh other than like very very like limited thematic elements um -hmm. but yeah, I, I'm always happy when they appear, and it's, they're always a lot of fun. Yeah, and it, there is there it, there is always the chance of being able to get like a better perspective on what's going on with these. And sometimes, sometimes there are episodes that I think are actually like there are skits that actually do comment effectively. Mm. Sometimes I think they are just like 
nonsense bullshit. I was a little confused about them originally because I I think one of them silhouette reminded me of Wakaba, and so I immediately thought, oh, is is she one of these these girls? Sort of like, is this like Utina's fan club, like commenting on <laughs> what's going on from behind the scenes? Uh, but the, as it it becomes like evident as time goes by, like they're completely separate from her and like yeah. unknowable and separated and, from and- the going-ons of the Academy in certain ways. And in fact, at the at the end of the core, they, like, make the joke that they're aliens when they, like, they're like, oh, it's time to, we're done being normal, it's time to be who we really are, and they get in a, a flying saucer and take off. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the recap episode, they land in in a different locale because it's, they're, they're, the first se- the first core, they're like, on the like the other side of a loggia and they're being projected on the far wall um by by like the setting sun and you can like even see the the shadows going off screen to where the girls presumably are but then they fly off to a different angle where they're behind a, a painted window in a hallway and they'll they'll just be lit in pure shadow for for the second season, for the second core. Just to go back to something Jeff was saying about Utena is like when Wakaba's there telling her, well, you, you've, you've, you, it's not good to be normal and being normal is nothing to be aspire to. You have these East Chorus girls flying off, going, okay, it's who we really are as aliens. <laughs> We're going to fly off now. And, and it's, it's like, yeah, go, go Utena. Become your, yeah, your I don't, weird alien self. I don't know if there's like, I think that if this was like an academic journal and we had to like write about like the literal or the the allegorical meaning of the skits, I think that actually we probably wouldn't get very far. <laughs> but they're just funny and nice, and sometimes they actually have something to say about wh- like what the real axis of whatever with the characters is. Mm-hmm. And I think especially the second season where there's a lot of like weird newspaper jokes, it gets a bit more mm-hmm. a bit more comprehensible. But like. I think we can just talk in general. Like, I don't think that Ikuhara, especially mm. with this early stuff, cares one whit about comprehensibility. <laughs> and in fact, is notorious yeah. for for giving different answers in different interviews <laughs> to the same questions, especially when we get to the movie. Okay, well, I think we're wrapping up. We're just talking about the themes okay. and stuff, and then we, we close out. All right. Okay, so okay. quickly, um, but... uh, things I want to get in quickly are the music and repeated motifs. So yeah, so let's okay. talk about the about the visual and and, uh, and uh, aud- auditory elements. Okay, um, as as our resident like sound and art guy, Duncan, what do you what what do you have to say? Sound and art guy. Um, well, um, I think yeah. When I first saw Utena, the other thing which threw me a bit was the fact that it kept repeating scenes and, <laughs> and I was like, welcome to fucking ikuhara yeah and uh, uh, indeed ikuhara does love nothing more than to who shoot one shoot a really iconic looking sequence and then why why only use that sequence once when you can use it to contextualize as a ritualized event time and time again throughout a series and i think to begin with, I was like, well, why are you doing this? You should animate differently. And then I go, actually, for something like a duel, which is a, a ritualized combat, having a ritualized introduction is kind of appropriate. And then there's the whole aesthetic, all the roses and all mm-hmm. this gildedness. And I, it, 
that along with the the sort of noble nature of of Utena and the the, the school council uh, made me think of like pre-Raphaelite stuff. People like uh, Burne Jones and William Morris, mm-hmm. and they they were fascinated not with necessarily the uh, history of of Arthurian legend, but with the sort of the romantic ideal of of the noble knight and the round table and innocence and craft and all this. And I I, I feel like Ikuhara probably knows the knows the pre-Raphaelites and enjoys all their floral and uh, Arthurian motif. Yeah, there's... You you have to wonder, because I think that any of us who've watched any shoujo kind of understand this, like, cargo cult high fantasy that mm-hmm. defines a vast majority of the shoujo uh, genre. And just, like, the default that, like, frames of, ro- of like, roses are ubiquitous in stuff. They're, they're a joke in Karikano, even, um, where a, a guy can, like, the, the womanizer guy can, like, open and close them at will. Um, no, sorry, that's, that's uh, Yukino. Um, but, yeah, like, the, um, when I was watching with my, with my friend, we were talking about how, like, the backgrounds in this look like architectural sketches. Um, they have this, like, these really defined line work, and there's, like, a really light, like, extremely minimal watercolor often mm-hmm. especially with the one sweeping shot of of otori academy that at least once an episode you'll see the entire <laughs> grounds and it's like massive uh school thing which i wonder how i wonder if like the the massive like central tower academy mm-hmm. was invented by utana or whether because like it's in every like subsequent dramatic show yeah dramatic supernatural show that takes place at school there's always just like the massive tower in the middle like we're talking about kill the kill yeah and like that but but yeah that whole show is basically just what if utena but for boys yeah (laughs) uh but but yeah i i do think that like the way that the art is is extremely spare and the color palette where oftentimes you have these extremely like watercolory washed out backgrounds and then brilliant color like everyone's got the brightest deepest most saturated hair color like bright like no no pussyfooting around about how oh this is actually just like green tinted black and we stylized it like sanji's got bright green hair Mm -hmm. and utana has like rose pink hair and toga has just blood red burnt ochre hair yeah (laughs) Uh, so, so we do have these, the the colors language of this, and this is something where I think we were talking before about how the, this, this show is such a blessing on, on high definition because the colors are so deep and rich and the, like the line work of the backgrounds is so detailed. You can't even, this show's available for free from the, from the licensor Nozomi Entertainment on YouTube, but like the, it's night and day looking at this high definition versus... It's yeah. It's worth saying those ones aren't available for free in all countries. As with, oh, I'm sorry. As with some things, but um, yeah, the 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 if you're in the UK, watching Utena is not necessarily easy. Um, sadly, which is ridiculous. It it is one of the titans of the '90s, and the fact that like no one's got it licensed, and I can't imagine that. That B Papas or Ikuhara is yeah. driving a hard bargain with the licensing fees I think or whatever. DVD still exists. I, as far as I'm aware, no Region Two Blu-ray and no uh, no streaming solution. I, so mm. yeah, frustrating. Um, yeah. But yeah, th- th- those quibbles are aside. It's uh, <laughs> the show and Ikuhara's 
use of visual motifs is also something which uh, goes into the music that he oh yeah he will use this he likes a tune he can and and slightly remix and and use repeatedly yeah i mean every character has a theme and they usually have a like triumphant version of the theme like a casual like jazz piano version of the theme theme and maybe like a, a goofy horn version um utina especially i don't know if we can play the like opening bars of student scarlet versus the opening bars of jump up beauty But if you compare those two, they're the same song, and you can kind of recognize Utina's leitmotif uh, throughout, but sometimes you don't realize it, and you just recognize it as as the songs for different occasions, but there's actually... We don't really get that much anymore with, uh, with uh, a lot of soundtracks, especially anime soundtracks, of characters having a like series of notes or an instrument associated with them, and then remixing different songs to handle different situations... Like it happens to a certain extent in, in um, in a lot of Sagusushiro's work, so Kari Kano, Evangelion, even Bleach. But I think just the production schedules mean that you can't have these like incredibly rich scores. I I was looking up trying to get the Utena box set of CDs, and it's ten CDs. I can't have that many CDs. <laughs> I only have one CD player left in my house anyway because that medium's dying. Uh, maybe prematurely, but but yeah, the music is incredible, and even it's worth pointing out that the uh, Zetai Unmei Mokishiroku uh, Absolute Destiny Apocalypse that's played when she ascends the dueling stage. Which, as you said, is very real, ritualistic, not just not just uh, in terms of being like a ritualized duel, but like, as I said before, like a no drama or something. Um, that that is by an experimental composer with whom Ikuhara, I think, has familiarity, whose name is J.A. Caesar. That's his <laughs> stage name. He's actually Taki Terahara, but he goes by Julius Arnest Caesar. Um, <laughs> so, and he was specifically chosen because he does do like wacky weird stuff. And so he does that Zetai Yume Mokishiroku and all the dual songs, which are also extremely weird and oftentimes just like complete word salad of yeah, just like complex say. psychological and biological concepts. Yeah. How much of that came from Ikuhara and how much he just said, well, just do what you like. I think it's two weird guys hanging out and just being like, yeah. yeah. What about Scipio's dream? That doesn't work here. That's a that's a ancient cosmology. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, I just think it sounds cool. What, what, what 
So I thought she <laughs> wondered if the Scipio thing was weirdly appropriate because that was is Mickey, wasn't it? Yes. And and Scipio is like what like what I I associate him with is like this young prodigy, which Mickey is as well. And so I was like, is this telling me something? Which should answer probably not. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but like Scipio's dream it comes from Cicero's uh, De Republica. Um, it's basically the only thing that really survives from that. And it's, uh, it's him having a dream where he sees that the universe is made of nine celestial spheres where, um, where like that basically lays out what we would think of as the, as the, uh, pre Galileo universe, okay. um, where there's the, uh, different, uh, different planets are set in different spheres, move different speeds and they resonate with each other. That makes, you know, the music of the spheres, um, that uh is basically the the principle that makes music work so um i do think that there's a certain belief in in rationality and uh, a clockwork universe behind the idea of scipio's mm. dream but i also think that it probably just sounded good and fit the meter <laughs> too so not to be a complete cynic because but as we said like ikuhara frequently i think frequently enjoys using decontextualized symbols or de de-signified symbols where it looks like it means something but it actually doesn't mean anything it just it just looks like a symbol and he kind of like uses it as like breadcrumbs or popcorn to like set your brain up to into a more interpretive mode mm-hmm. um, where you're trying yeah. to see like what's the thing behind the thing but like which again I'll reference Mickey's stopwatch which I do not think really means anything except perhaps the like interval between like between reaction and action but beyond that i don't really think so and as like ikuhara has given contradictory statements about all sorts of things that hmm. mean that like the word of god even doesn't work here um he said multiple times to different people different things about like what utena turning into a car at the end of the of the uh, infamous uh scene in the I adolescence think that's of spoilers and I, I'm, I'm gonna have to cut that out oh uh, <laughs> really <laughs> Everyone knows that they turn into a car. That's the only. That's like the only thing I knew about it, about Utena. Let's see. Turn into a car anime. Oh look, it's just wall to wall Utena. Actually, it's not. That's weird. I was gonna say there's it's a, probably Transformers. It's, it's probably uh, a lot of 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 nineties uh, Transformers and. Bumblebee. I actually there there is a there is a an anime called Henkei Shoujo, um, which is about girls that can turn into different machines. Um, I can't believe there's a cute girl turn turn into cute things anime out there. Uh, and then there's Turbo Teen, and then only further down do we get Transformers. Mm. I blame the McElroy brothers for making Turbo Teen a thing again. Uh-huh. It should have disappeared. Uh, so, yeah, so if we've gone on to, like, symbols and motifs, was, was there anything that, like, set you off, Jeff, uh, in well, terms of... There is the 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 other repeated motif in the show, which is the student council ascending in the elevator and repeating <laughs> the story about you know if the if the bird doesn't crack the egg, then it will die before it lives, and so we must crack the egg of the world, or we'll die before we get a chance to live. And that that was the thing that sent me into like Wikipedia <laughs> K holes and stuff and like I'm I'm going to resist going into my various theories because I don't think any of it will be especially interesting. But it did lead but me you know, to you know what would be even more boring is for you to be like actually I had a theory about this last season but I didn't say anything because I'm a coward. All right, so that is a <laughs> that's a that's a direct quote from uh, Herman Hess, who is a uh, German poet and novelist from the early 1900s 
uh, who wrote a book. Shit, now I'm going to have to Google this one sec. We'll have it in the yeah. show notes. Don't Get, you worry. Getting your, your red uh, string and pins down from yeah. the board. And, <laughs> and so there is a continuation of that, uh, of that quote where he says that the, uh, the, the egg of uh, the egg is the world. And to become a God, you have to destroy a world. And the, the God of that world is Abraxas, who is a old timey, god gnostic, of right? like like a gnostic god yeah from yeah. the ancient greeks uh and that i think is probably more central like, like for me right now my deep read of the show is that this is a show about a person l- individuating themselves from the rest of the world in the form of anthe who is like the antithesis of this and her sort of travails you know with all of these student council people and also Utna who is the only person who is trying to actualize her into a person above who has her own wants and desires and the uh, whereas all of the student council members what what links them all together despite their you know different levels of evil is that they're all <laughs> willing to use Anthe for their own purposes to uh to become you know to become gods themselves and to use this girl to do it and apart from jury hmm? well i mean even she like she she is she's specifically i like i so i I said this in the group chat sort of half jokingly like i say everything but i read <laughs> jury's convictions as a very similar kind of thing like the new atheism of the early 2000s where it was a lot of like aesthetic kicking and punching against sort of the the establishment ideology without actually investigating any of the core cultural assumptions and just transferring a lot of those toxic ideas into new ideas. So rather than wanting to use Anthe for their own purposes, she wants to use Anthe to ruin everybody else's purposes. Yeah. Like she still wants mm-hmm. to instrumentalize this girl. She still doesn't actually care about this person. Uh, Even despite her own experience as a plaything between two people, basically, mm-hmm. she still wants to <laughs> wants I, to fuck I, everyone's I read, shit up. I read that bit different. I, I like. She, I think she al- well almost doesn't see Anthe, which is is like weirdly yeah. different in itself. That that it's she's so obs- obsessed with her own unfitness to do it. Like she doesn't think like possessing Anthe what will disprove it she thinks her winning is what will disprove it like and anthe just happens to be there yeah <laughs> that, that's just no i i think that's right i think i think i i think i agree with that i shouldn't say that anything's right because that's not the kind <laughs> of anime <laughs> that that uh, that Utena is but i but i do think that like that it's all like jury has achieved this kind of proxy selflessness because she is just so she has so much despair and she's so bitter and she's and she's so focused on these two people who have basically cut her out of their lives thereby like so she almost has the selflessness that utina has that allows utina to act as the prince but it comes from the wrong place and goes to the wrong place Mm. and it makes her kind of less of the the prince that the show at least tells us is what's necessary to succeed in these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Jeff, just like on on this stuff, like, do you have any thoughts on like 
whether the, this whole um, uh, egg and crack chick cracking its shell has like any relevance to like this uh, the spirit of the prince inhabiting Utena. Um, I'd I haven't really sussed out what that is supposed to mean, like. D- I mean, the prince's name is Dios. Supposed to mean. Well, like, well, well Sorry, or like, not, or, so let me let me put it another way. I haven't decided where it fits into my like conspiracy theory board yet. But the fact that the prince is named Dios, and also that this other character Accio has you know sort of devil overtones, you know, and the fact that we see the first time we see Dios in something that's not either like an ethereal uh, manifestation or in a flashback, he's sitting on top of an egg with a big crack in it. And Accio says, Oh look, they've cracked the egg of the world. And it's like, okay, so this is just like a thing in this world in, in some sense. And but what does it represent? Yeah. So, I mean, if, 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 like if my you know interpretation that Ikehara read this nineteenth century or nineteen hundred or twentieth century German novelist who used like Jungian symbolism to talk about mm-hmm. individuality, I think that is sort of what's being used in this because I'd, I I expect this to be a show about Anthe becoming a person and Utina's role in that and the the relationship or the romance that blossoms up around them and everybody else's desire to like undo that or stop it or instrumentalize it in some other way. I will say that I definitely agree that this this is a show about desire. And I think that especially does the desire of becoming, because I'd alluded before about how Utena is as much about an apocalypse as Neon Genesis Evangelion or Serial Experiments Lane. Mm -hmm. It's, I think it's as much freighted with the millenarian angst, but I think that it is definitely transfixed into this, this weird eternal high school where (laughs) everyone's just trying to get the power to change the world and all of their like anxieties about their identity and about like the, the consequences of their actions seem very adolescent, very transitional as they, kind of try to decide what kind of people they're going to be mm-hmm. and the people who have decided who they are are incidentally the assholes <laughs> of the show like the, the characters with like the clearest identity are are toga sayanji even jury who are just kind of like dicks yeah. <laughs> and there is this idea that like that this is uh, a show about like yearning and becoming and like what do the interplays of identities and what do the narratives that we impose with this whole like Prince thing uh, mean? Because we have repeatedly, I think it's like four or five times over the course of the, of the, the first core, we have this, the, the fairy tale like story told in the child's voice of this girl who decided to become a Prince because a Prince comforted her when she was deep in despair. Um, And what is it? It, it seems very, like, low-minded to be like, well, what does it mean to become a prince? Like, that's... But I think that it actually is asking, like, what 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 is nobility? And can we choose to become these noble characters? Mm-hmm. Can we choose to to exist on a higher level of of action and uh, and intention uh, than, than what we're necessarily born or driven into? And I don't think... I think you're right to point out the axis between 
Utena and Anthi, um, the the consummately proactive and the consummately reactive mm-hmm. girl. But I think that they are surrounded by a much larger field of characters, which you'll definitely see in the next yeah. in the next core. So, my understanding of chivalry as it exists in the world and not in as it exists in storybooks is that it was basically a code of conduct that was created to get the people who had all the land and all the swords to not just be warlords <laughs> and to act in an accordance to a higher purpose. Is that? I mean, it's, it's more complicated than that because I think that chivalry comes around during the twilight of the middle ages fundamentally. So most of the people that we think of as Kings and Knights would not know chivalry except as a word, meaning the act of being, a mounted warrior mm-hmm. um, in the in the eleventh and twelfth and even thirteenth century, what we have with what the constraining ideal is the peace of God and the idea that like Christians shouldn't fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the power of the church declined, as the power of the state increased and thereby decreased the power of like local dukes and counts and barons, the more secular but also more romantic because it's being born out of like the troubadour movement Mm -hmm. uh, in the 12th and 13th century. This idea of chivalry came about as like, well, we don't have, we don't have the money or the power anymore to differentiate us um, from merchants and peasants. What we have is this, is this internalized ideal um, of personal and cultural uh, thought and action. And so there is this idea that um, chivalry is kind of a self-imposed hard mode that shows that you're a better person (laughs) than everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I would argue that's how it has persisted to the present day with the same sort of selfish toxicity yeah. that that saw its divi- its creation in the 14th century. Um, so and I think that. Oh, oh no, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, like the Toga's use of the trappings of chivalry to to uh, basically convey himself that he has, you know, that he's not just the same manipulative people that are surrounded him, even though he is the most manipulative. And then contrasting that to Utena, who has no ideology beyond, I want to be a good person. I want to be a prince and, you know, and, and just sort of naturally acting in a way that is maybe literally in accordance to God's wishes as the show may bear out, I think is, an, an interesting contrast and an interesting way to have those two characters be their antitheses. Yeah, I do. See, it, it always feels weird to talk about uh, about like Utena wanting to be a prince because I think that there's the in English at least there's the the gender dichotomy that makes that kind of thorny, and there's also just the idea that like historically in the real world princes were mostly assholes because mm-hmm. that's just nature of power. But we do have this like. This idealized, almost childlike, I would submit. Which is absolutely of, what of, Utena is modeling her own yes, idea of a prince. Of. Yes. The kid's idea of a prince. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a thought occurs to me as, as Jeff talks there that about uh, this and, and in, in, is that I wonder if Utena's maybe a little modeled on Joan of Arc. Like this... <laughs> A little bit. I can you want do you want to explore that a bit more? Well, it's it's like there are so few female knightly figures there, uh, and she's the one who, like in the Arthurian legend, it's always is the the the, the princess getting rescued or um, the sorceress conniving in the background, and then in you have this 
Christian martyr Joan, this by yeah a martyr this selfless person and going and fighting for her country and god and i think to the there's definitely some bits and bobs of of her popping up in like religious artwork as like this this embodiment of the uh, the saintly night night and i just wonder if like Utena's maybe like maybe Joan of Arc's the genesis of where the far back in time where Utena comes from this 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 woman who is what who somehow is more more well to to use something you two are very fond of more this fake who's more real than the real <laughs> <laughs> look it's monogatari that's fond of that we just did a bunch of monogatari tweens and i think that's interesting <laughs> too but i i don't necessarily know if it's directly influenced but I think that that Utena is definitely working in the Joan of Arc idiom of a woman who who casts aside femininity, at least the external trappings of femininity, because Joan of Arc wore man's clothes, uh, same as same as Utena does, and she like doesn't doesn't partake in the typical passive role of women. Um, so we do have this character who has kind of just decided to like if you just dress like a man and act like a man, then then. Um, like where where is the gender yeah. the, the gender dynamic there and i think that utana is pretty clear that like that uh, i mean utana herself says is that she's that she's she's like just because i dress in boys clothes doesn't mean i'm a boy i am a prince though mm-hmm. is something that's kind of hard to unpick in in uh in at least in english maybe yeah. it's a little bit uh less confusing but there is this idea of her as as kind of just deciding to take on the trappings of nobility and see where that goes yeah. much like she took on like she's taken on this fairy tale story of the prince who saves everybody, and the show is, I think, fundamentally asking us if the the stories we told ourselves in our childhood actually have relevance to us in our development as people, and is it a good or a bad relevance? Yeah, and the so. and the show actually literally asks you that question because anytime they <laughs> finish telling that story about Utena's uh, yeah. origin, they yes, then ask, right. you know, she had decided to become a prince, but was that really such a great idea? Yeah, the the way they phrase that is that they they like pause a little bit before they say it, and it's just got this this cadence to it, which just works really well, and and, and sort of undermines the person saying it as it's said, and yeah, it's it's good. So let's go ahead and wrap it up there. I hope that you, dear listeners, have enjoyed us talking about one of the most written about and thematically dense anime uh, in the canon. Uh, We'll be getting into more meat as we move out of what I would think of as the more traditional yet still subversively presented shoujo battler and into something that's a bit more psychological, a lot more weird, and even more embarrassing filler episodes about Nanami being a dumb bitch, apparently. So... (laughs) Uh, yeah, so remember, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Find us on Twitter at Keyframes Pod. Find us on Facebook. Search for Keyframes Podcast. Email us questions. Um, really put the thumbscrews on us with Utenafax at keyframespodcast at gmail.com. And tell a friend that we're finally doing a show that's not embarrassing to talk about with other people. <laughs> so say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Try low bite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all night. <laughs>